It's a fact. Life can be hard. And dealing with its challenges is no mean feat. The ability to recover quickly in the face of adversity is known as resilience and can be our best ally during times of stress. Welcome to The Resilient Road. In this series, we look at human stories of perseverance, exploring what makes someone resilient and what we can all do to help nurture this process in our own lives. My name is Sinead. I am joined by my colleague Elle. Hello. And my other colleague, Brian. Hi. We're part of Positive Group, a team who uses psychology and neuroscience to help people make positive changes to improve their health and well-being. In this episode, we're going to be looking at resilience as linked to grief and loss through the story of Barry and Margaret Mizzen, who tragically lost their son, Jimmy. Resilience uh, is something I've never really thought about as a word itself. But for me, I suppose, thinking on this, resilience is coping. Uh, I think there's an interior strength in all of us. And everybody, probably above the age of about five, can, can draw on something. And so, how did I manage? You know, there is something within us that enables us to cope at the most difficult of times. I suppose for me, this story is one that really struck a chord with me. It's one that I remember. I remember it happening in the news at the time. I've thought about it a lot since because I feel that how they conducted themselves and what they've done since Jimmy's death has just been the most amazing story. Uh, It's hard really to get your head around how they've gone on the journey that they have. It's important to say that when it comes to grief and loss, there is no simple resilience formula. No one size fits all. We all experience it in our own unique way. It's a process, and not one that we ever necessarily come to the end of. But in the case of the Mizens, we are interested in the factors that supported them to keep going in the face of their trauma. So in this episode, we're looking at how belief and community come together to help enhance resilience. My name is Barry Mizzen. Um, I'm the father of nine children. My second youngest son, Jimmy, unfortunately was murdered. I'm Margaret Mizzen, the mother of Jimmy Mizzen, who was killed the 10th of May 2008. And I work in a charity called For Jimmy. We travel the country sharing our son's story in schools in the hope of trying to bring something good from what happened to our son. How do I meet my wife? Um, I had a a shop many, many years ago. I was in my mid-twenties. My wife, my future wife, lived around the corner. She seemed to appear every night, um, and I think we'd somewhere along the line, we'd both taken a shine to each other in passing. He used to close his shop, and I used to have to go to the station, so I'd wait to hear from him pulling his sign in, and when he did that, I knew it was time to walk along the road. And we walked down, we'd start talking, and we're still talking 41 years later. Yeah, we've been married a long time. <laughs> um, what was I reading today it's about communication being to a relationship as oxygen is to life? So it's so important to talk. And yes, we have moments of disagreement, absolutely. But I love my wife as I did the day I first met her. And it is a great source of strength to me.
I suppose essentially the story we share is of two young people, if you like. Jimmy, our son, and the perpetrator of his death, a 19-year-old at the time called Jake. Jimmy was one of the easiest laid-back young people you could ever meet, or children, or babies even. Just really nice, always smiling. He had a zest for life. He enjoyed life. Nothing seemed to bother him. I'm a boring old dad of, of a lot of children. I tell silly jokes and I get all the time, Dad, we've heard it before, it's not funny. But Jimmy would always laugh. Yeah, no, he was just really a gift to his family. Jake was very well known locally. Um, he was a very violent, confrontational person. He'd actually bullied, he'd attacked one of their other sons on a, a couple of occasions. Ever deteriorating behaviour, uh, more and more criminal activity that was never fully addressed. May the 10th, 2008, uh, changed my life completely. Jimmy used to work with me on a Saturday. I gave him this particular day off because it had been his birthday the day before. I was in the front room on the edge of the settee thinking of all the housework I had to do. And then Jimmy come in. Mum, I want to do the lottery. I'm 16. And off he went round the corner. I looked out of the one of the bedroom windows and I saw a friend running into another friend's garden. Then my mobile phone started ringing and I ran downstairs to answer it. But it was one of those friends telling me to get round the corner quick because Jimmy was being attacked. Briefly, Jimmy went into a local bakery shop uh, and ended up with a glass dish being smashed in Jimmy's face. A piece of the glass went through vital arteries in his neck. I got as far as a bakery where most of the people were. Out the back was Jimmy lying in the cupboard in a pool of blood and his brother Tommy was holding him, trying to stop the flow of blood. And Tommy said to me, Mum, go back, you'll be okay. And I did as I was told. I almost went back to being a child and went back round the counter. I fainted, probably for only seconds. When I came to, I rang Barry, who was five miles away. I was at work. Uh, my wife rang me to say Jimmy has been attacked. It looks bad, get home quick. Drove the five miles or so to the bakery shop where uh, Margaret said Jimmy had been attacked. Had such a sense of foreboding. All the way through, I had such a sense of foreboding. As I got there, I'm aware paramedics coming out of the bakery, taking their gloves off, and a voice from somewhere, I don't know where, just said he's dead. My first reaction, dead. What am I supposed to do now? I remember just sitting down in, in, in a gutter where all the roads were blocked off, police, ambulances everywhere. And someone come up and just told me the name. It was Jake. For some reason, it didn't surprise me, which I still can't quite compute why it didn't. And then suddenly dawned on me, my youngest son, George, around eight at the time. Where's George? Uh, I found him, he was sitting in the back of uh, one of the emergency vehicles, crying, just cuddled him. I said to George, you know, don't worry, Jimmy's in heaven. George hasn't cried since, so he's 19 years of age now, lovely, lovely person. A lot of chaos outside after that. We were trying to phone the rest of our family. Our lovely son Danny was on a rugby tour in Spain. We had to contact him. I can remember screaming down the phone to him about Jimmy being killed. And I often think, I've thought about that so many times after, I could have handled it better without screaming down the phone. Yeah, I often think about that. And uh, then we went home. I 
I didn't want to leave Jimmy, but they promised us that when they brought Jimmy out, then we could all go around as a family. So we got the message about 7.30, 8 o'clock that evening to say that they were ready to bring Jimmy out. We could all go around and we did family, friends. We went round and they brought my son out in a black bag. But the priest was then able to give him a blessing, which gave me comfort. And they took Jimmy off to the mortuary. After that, again, we all went home and our house was so filled with people. And I'm talking about hundreds of people. Literally, it was everywhere was just full. It was just an absolute hive of activity. We were a large family, um, a lot of connection with friends, parish friends, but also local neighbours, some complete strangers, shopkeepers, etc. I had to go up to my bedroom to make sense of it. Was everyone really crying downstairs? Was our lovely son Jimmy really dead? It just does not seem possible. So many gifts of food were brought round. We had tea bags to last us for a year. People turned up with casseroles and desserts and we had hundreds of people in our house for many days weeks there was always enough food to feed them because of the kindness of people these things really help in situations like this just amazing so it's all such commotion but we felt very very supported uh, we, we had a senior investigating officer and a family liaison officer. And these two people became huge colossus in our lives. And we felt so supported, so informed all the way through. The only issue we had was with the coroners. We had to go and visit the mortuary a few days later to officially identify him. But he was behind a glass screen because his body was still evidence. We weren't allowed to touch him, to cuddle him. But we comforted ourselves and thought, well, when the body is eventually released, and it will be, that we'll have Jimmy's body home and we'll have the casket open the night before his funeral and we'll sit around and we'll remember Jimmy and pray, prayers, etc. But that was kind of denied to us because when Jimmy's body was eventually released, we were advised not to view Jimmy's body. The reason being that decomposition had taken place um, to, to quite a serious degree. And for us, it was almost like a second bereavement. Really difficult to deal with. And in as much as when the, f the funeral did come round, Jimmy's coffin was kept closed. The circumstances of Jimmy's death struck a note nationally. Letters arrived. We had a letter from the Prime Minister. We had a letter from the leader of the opposition. Um, a letter from the Mayor of London. The, all, all these things hand-delivered to, to, the, to the door. I think we were overwhelmed the amount of love that was shown towards us. We see outpourings of, of this sort of care all the time with, with major tragedies, maybe. Do you know, you, you, you think, well, that's actually within all of us. Why don't we do a little bit more rather than just waiting for these huge things? How did I manage my own grief? So I think it's a multitude of things. I drew on my faith. I firmly believe I will see my son again one day in, in whatever context that may be. I was very aware in the early days, and this was a very conscious decision, that I wasn't going to talk about Christian faith. I was going to talk about faith generally, this belief in something other than what we see and, and can touch and experience, because I didn't want people to feel uh, disenfranchised, and I don't believe in any of that. I remember on the Monday going to Jimmy's school for a Mass, and the press asked me, Mrs. Mizzen, how are you coping? And I said, I remember getting really cocky with them, pointing my finger. I think you know how I'm coping. 
I have a faith. And all the way along, it's our faith that really sustained us. So faith, my, my um, relationship with my wife, so, so important because these sort of uh, events break up relationships uh, to a very high degree. I coped because of Barry, he was my strength in those early days. Um, he was very much on the ball with everything. You know, when the press came, I knew that he could do all of that. Interestingly, on the day that Jimmy was killed, another couple joined us. Their son had died at 18. The mum was comforting Margaret. And the dad was talking to me, and this might sound so old-fashioned, but he said, Barry, you're the father. You've got to take responsibility. You've got to, 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 to lead this, to lead your response. So I, I was aware of that being put on me, and I wasn't put out by that. Um, and it reciprocates, it's two ways. It's not just a one-way street. Particularly in the very early days, we grieved together. It wasn't just about us supporting our children, it was about our children supporting us. We sat around our kitchen table talking about Jimmy all the time in those early days, and it allowed us to smile. We would all be laughing and we'd all be crying. But also within there, there was a conscious decision. And I don't even know when I became aware of this conscious decision, but this is what I, it, it, it rules my life now. And one, that something good had to come from it, something of value. And secondly, I would not be beaten by what happened to my son. I would not be beaten by the trauma that had been affected upon me and my family. I think you know, if we, we're talking about resilience, you can undermine resilience, I suppose, deliberately if you want to. Is there part of you, I don't want to manage this, I want to live in this sense of victimhood, uh, this, this sense of uh, negative feelings, if you like. Um, but I think that goes on to destroy us as individual people. It's not the way to help ourselves. I think I come to the realisation very quickly that I forgave the boy that killed Jimmy. And it didn't mean it didn't matter, because I can tell you it does matter what happened to Jimmy. But I had a need to get through each day. I had a need to be there for my family, and I felt that if I didn't forgive, I couldn't do that. I would be consumed with this disease that would take my life, if you like. Hate is a really difficult word to understand fully, but I think what happens is, because people don't forgive, the hate comes into it. It's a poison. It's a poison that rips through your body, it rips through your heart. And Archbishop Desmond Tutu puts it so beautifully. Forgiveness is the best form of self-interest. It does help me. It just feels the right thing to do. I absolutely believe if we lived in a world with more forgiveness, we would have a better world. That, I mean, that's quite difficult to listen to, actually, hearing the story of what it was that happened, how it came about. I think, uh, for me, one of the very first things to point out in that is how unique they are in their response to this. And I think when Margaret mentions the Bishop Tutu quote about um, forgiveness being linked to self-interest, I think that's very, very insightful because I think when we think about the fact that they had this capacity for forgiveness for Jake, it feels that they must have had really high levels of altruism and self-sacrifice. But actually, having the kind of insight to see that actually this looks to self-interest as well. If I want to protect my family, if I want to protect myself to be in a good place to help our family move on from this, then I need to bring this kind of forgiveness into our lives, which 
isn't the intuitive response, I would say, to things. There's a lot of work now done on this concept of what's called embitterment. And, and Margaret Mizen identifies this as sort of hate. And I think, I think it can be consuming. It can eat you up. And one of our colleagues at Positive, Tom Sensky, has done some work on chronic embitterment syndrome. When somebody does you a mischief or an injustice, and then you think about it, and then you continue to think about it. And this actually has the capacity to wire up neural circuits in your brain in a sort of neuroplastic way. So the more you think about it, the more neurons you recruit. Mm -hmm. And this goes from being a footpath to a bridleway, to a B road, to an A road, to an autobahn. And then it becomes your screensaver. And then when your eyes flutter open in the morning, the first thing you think about is the injustice or the mischief, which you, makes you angry and resentful. And then that can take over your head. And I think what Barry and Margaret have done so brilliantly here is this concept of acceptance. It is as it is, but then a commitment to actually you know, making the loss of Jimmy something that is worthwhile, something good will come from mm. this. And I think there's something incredibly uplifting about that. I, I'm not sure for a second that I could do that, but, but I'm amazed by their capacity. I think it's interesting how Barry talks about the social support, because you can have social support in your life, but how you perceive it is ultimately the aspect that's protective. And as opposed to them feeling like just being completely overwhelmed or just feeling like too many people wanted to come and see them. They actually just saw that as an enormous support. And I think that was the bit that really struck me, the, the multi-levels of social support within the marriage, within the family, mm. within the community. Yeah, and tea, I mean, tea bags to last for a lifetime, yeah. I just think, or a year. It's just um, quite raw kindness yeah. in the most basic of ways, the simplest of ways. It's just a really nice message that actually modern day you don't really hear much of. See, that's something that really resonates with me. Um, so I'm Irish and when we have um, a bereavement, we have a wake. So when someone passes away, they get buried on the third day. And in that period in between times, we have a wake, which is 24 hours. So we'll have the body at home and people will come and visit and pay their respects. But they bring all the food in the world. So there's always enough sandwiches to feed an army, enough tea bags, coffee. Um, as the Mizzens were chatting about desserts and lasagnas and absolutely everything. But that means so much to people in that kind of, when it's very raw, when it's very fresh, the fact that people are taking time to make up a batch of sandwiches, which is a really small act, but actually it's very, very meaningful. And, you know, being a psychologist, I've often thought about the the power of the wick in terms of that psychological process of dealing with the grief, because you are coming together, you're sharing stories. So you'll always laugh harder than you've ever laughed at a wick, but you'll also obviously cry harder than you've ever cried. So there, there is a real collective sense of processing that emotion. And I don't think we're very good at talking about death and our own mortality, mm. particularly in Western societies. And I think that even for the purpose of this podcast, it sort of makes me feel quite sort of numb in a way, just hearing the rawness of their story. Yeah. And I think that it's interesting that it's things like social support that are protective, but I think people that are going through grief it's quite hard to see the light mm -hmm. uh, and how you navigate your way through that. Mm -hmm. And that is a form of, you know, essentially you're needing to demonstrate resilience. You've been through a trauma, you've been through adversity, mm -hmm. essentially, and you're trying to navigate your way through. But 
I think, yeah, responding to grief, especially in a world where we're not great at talking about it, is particularly difficult. It's tricky. So if we were able to have those conversations, it would be incredibly protective in terms of our levels of resilience and how we respond to these natural, naturally occurring um, bereavements and life events, but also the more traumatic ones. And it sounds like in Barry and Margaret's case, they they were able to have those conversations with each other. He talks yeah. about mm. communication um, kind of being the, the lifeline of relationships. And they obviously had a very solid foundation as a couple and then as a family, but they were also able to draw on that community level support as well, which appears to have been something that, that really has helped them at this time. One of the things that really struck me was Barry's comment that Jimmy's in heaven. And I think in its broadest sense, this is a sort of, it's a very calming, it's a very soothing And it's a very encouraging thought in some ways. And there is good data showing that people who have a strong belief actually cope with uh, life's ups and downs more effectively. Mm -hmm. And there's some data that shows that they actually live longer. So there is something happening around this belief system that is protective. And then I think to be surrounded by people who share that belief Mm -hmm. system Mm -hmm. is probably very powerful. And we're tribal animals. And I think that religiosity and that connection and that part of a community is, again, we're seeing that protective element coming in. It's really interesting because I think the research behind um, the impact that belief and faith can have on our psychological well-being in general, but also that kind of ability to be resilient and, and to respond to things in a way that is kind of more helpful for you in the long term is really interesting. And I think some of the the key things that they've noticed in the literature that looks at this and the impact of this is that the components of our faith that enable us to feel optimism, hope, forgiveness, those are the bits that can actually make a real difference in terms of our psychological well-being. And I'd be really interested to think about the Mizzen story or these things that are protective and helpful for them in dealing with this. And the, and the love and kindness that is often associated. The person who killed my son was charged with Jimmy's murder. Ten months later, went to trial at the Central Criminal Court in London, which everyone calls the Old Bailey. That's actually just the place it's in. Jake was found unanimously guilty of Jimmy's murder. Anyone found guilty of murder in this country gets a life sentence automatically. I think I probably accepted before Barry did. I think it's just a realisation. Jimmy isn't coming back. I've just got to get on with my life and do what God is asking of me. And what he's asking of me is to work for peace in Jimmy's memory for all our young people. It took me, I think, best part of five years to fully absorb that my son was dead. Um, I knew he was dead. But the, this whole sense, when people say I thought I was dreaming, I experienced that to a profound degree. I thought I was actually dreaming. And then, no, it's the reality. But I think this determination made a difference. Something good had to come from it. We started up for Jimmy, really, to share Jimmy's story. And uh, at first, it was really frightening. We'd never done anything like it before. Um, But it just felt right. We live in a, a world that is bleak and we need to bring some light into the darkness. And that, for me, is, is what I hope that my words can bring more than anything. So the, the, the wording in our charity is so important to me. We are words of love, words of forgiveness, we are words of hope, and we hope we inspire young people to, to be the change makers. 
Most of our work is in schools. It's not based on knife crime. It's based on love. When we go into schools, we will tell young people, if you get nothing more from what we talk about or what we say, remember this, you are loved, you are of value and you do matter. And we have our safe haven program. We go to shops and ask them if a child's in trouble. Would you look after them? Would you call the police or the parents? The shopkeeper says yes. We then put a sticker in the window saying safe haven for Jimmy. And it's working really well. We've got lots of safe havens within our local community. And young people are beginning to recognise a sticker. It's much like seeing a no smoking sticker, really. Now it's a safe haven sticker. But it's, it's an underlying meaning, you know, that shopkeepers know the young person, the young person knows the shopkeeper, and you rebuild the community. The most important thing is you're building relationships. And we live in a world now with uh, damaged relationships. There is a responsibility on each and every one of us for our societies, the communities we live in, and the change begins with us. Our talks for change are also really important. Just before we broke up for Easter, I was doing almost two talks a day in different schools. But it's not just schools. We talk in churches, we talk at confirmation groups. Barry does a lot of talks with the Crown Prosecution Service, the victim support, all of these things. So Barry does a lot of our higher-up talks, you know, the ones that I don't. I sit on an advisory panel for the Ministry of Justice, um, instrumental in setting up the peer support element of the National Homicide Service. Um, so, yeah, yeah, now talks to various government bodies, etc., sharing our story, sharing our thoughts. Mm. Um, it seems to have an impact, and so we'll keep on doing it. Yes, it's Jimmy's legacy. That's the way we see it, um, from this beautiful young man who lived for 16 years and one day, and this is the legacy he's left for young people. There was definitely something different about Jimmy, and I think he'd be really proud of what's happening in his name. It's a way of life now. We eat, breathe, and live for Jimmy. You don't really rest. I'll, I'll say that most of my nights when I'm not sleeping is thinking about how we can make things better. I will never, ever stop doing what I do for Jimmy. I've often said since the beginning of this, everything I think, everything I say, everything I do, Jimmy's in there somewhere. And it's so important we don't lose the sight of that. If anything changes, it's because of Jimmy. That's um, really emotional hearing that, actually, and not knowing Jimmy at all. You can't help but think that he would be incredibly proud of his parents and what they've achieved and, and what they're seeking to do. And I think one of the bits of this that really interests me is the community work that they're now doing. And I know when we talk about resilience, it's often something we think about at the individual level. And we've also talked about how um, social support ties into it. But I think the other dimension then is is the kind of community angle. So the different environments that we find ourselves in, how can they relate to and enhance our levels of resilience? If we think about kind of the news and um, what's been going on over the past year, there's been a huge increase in violence in the community and things like knife crime. And that decreases our sense of 
psychological and physical safety. So I'd be interested to hear what you guys think about the work that they're doing because they're taking a very different approach. They're not going into schools and talking about knife crime. They're going in and talking about love. They're going in and talking about belonging and safety and then reaching out to people in the community who can help develop that. The thing I really relate to with the Mizzens is the fact they're realists. Mm -hmm. So they talk about um, how society has damaged relationships And Margaret says, the world is bleak. I've not heard such positivity and love and um, kind of wanting to drive change in such a real, sort of, and framed in such a real way Mm -hmm. before. So they sort of know the starting point, they know what they're dealing with, but they're like, we're up for the challenge. It is, and they've got such clarity of purpose. So they've got a specific remit that they're out to change for the positive. Um, and they're driving it forward just with a really amazing energy, I think. I think this concept of light into the darkness is is just a magical concept. And, you know, I think Barry's comment that, you know, this is our responsibility. Mm-hmm. This is about relationships. And we can all build and nourish relationships, or we can damage and undermine relationships. I think he's absolutely right about society. I think our individualism and our materialism, I think we're losing touch with the importance of relationships. And the problem is these things have been undermined by our very scientifically oriented, very data-driven measurement of material outcomes. And I think we need to bring some human kindness back into our world, because I think It sounds fluffy and woolly, but actually it's deeply important for every human Mm. being on the planet. And I think this concept of responsibility, it's our responsibility to bring it into our lives. I love that concept of responsibility. And I think as we've been working our way through these different stories, it's one that comes out again and again when you have a responsibility to yourself, but also when you have a responsibility to each other. So if we can enhance and develop the fact that we all need to look after each other in our communities. We all live together. We study together. We either practice our faiths together. We do sporting activities together. If we can start to appreciate, notice, Mm. value those, as we talk about those kind of softer skills of kindness, love, connection, what change could that make? And I can't help but feel it would make people all feel a little bit more safe all feel that kind of deeper sense of belonging and purpose and being part of something which we know is incredibly important in terms of resilience. It's almost annoyingly simple, (laughs) (laughs) you know? So, and it's funny because I don't know why, but I really relate to this sense of community where my grandparents grew up in East London Mm -hmm. and uh, I used to visit weekly. Everyone had these low fences in the back garden and you could see across all the gardens. There was that sense of community and I don't know why I identify that with my grandparents in East London. I don't know if it's, you know, our fences and our gardens have got higher and we all communicate on social media and just in general, things are a bit more fragmented. But um, they're definitely, it's funny, this story really takes me back in time. It's, yeah, like you said, it's kind of annoyingly simple. These are the skills that we're teaching in preschool, in nurseries. But then we get really bad at it as adults. We get bad at it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's a, a very good book written by um, a chap called John Ballot uh, called Intelligent Kindness, mm. uh, and it links to clinical care. And, and it's a fantastic book because w- what it looks at is the impact of kindness and we we've no longer we no longer value it and and i think the things that barry and margaret are talking about and you're both talking about and it is simple but it's also difficult to do when it's not valued 
in your society. So these are cultural display rules. And what we're obsessed with is celebrity, how other people see us and our material wealth. So we're chasing things that actually we know from lots and lots of science now don't make you happy. Mm-hmm. And the irony is that we're all suffering in the process. Yes, so, absolutely. you know, yeah. I guess we're all driven in a way that isn't necessarily making sense we- at the moment. And then someone like the Mizens come in and you think, it really does make you reflect. It made me mm. really think. I think humanist psychologists would argue you could get to the same place without having to believe in God. And that these are behaviours that human beings can manifest and you can choose to or choose not to be kind, supportive. All the data shows that being kind, altruistic, showing compassion is good for you as well as good for the recipient. So I, I think there's a, there's a fascinating process here that, that if we could wake up and smell the coffee, if we could realise what's going on and what the Mizens are teaching us in this process, uh, I, I think it could be transformative. I'd just like to pick out some of the key protective factors from Barry and Margaret's story that link to resilience. So they have a very strong family unit with strong family values. They have an immense belief system. They've got a strong community behind them. And they've also got a very strong sense of purpose driving them forwards. What's been most striking is how they've been able to take this event and turn it into something that allows their son's name to live on in a really, really positive way and their sense of responsibility to themselves and to others. So if we are able to notice and identify the purpose that's driving us forward and how that can positively benefit and impact other people, I think that's incredibly protective, not just for us, as as Margaret says. So there's a level of self-interest there, but actually it's really protective for others. And I love that they're trying to do this at the community level. So thinking about healthy behaviours, healthy patterns of interacting that will drive forward a more resilient society. I think for me, a takeaway is we can support others' resilience. So we can be that good partner, that good friend, that nice neighbour on the street. And we can influence other people's resilience and in turn hope that they will do the same. So, you know, buy that box of tea bags or that packet of biscuits because, you know, that could make a big difference to someone. For me, it's the the, the, the lightness into the darkness. I, I think that just really resonated. I, I think um, that that capacity to forgive, uh, that capacity to accept, and that kindness that I think really nourishes the human spirit. And I think Barrow's comment that this is your responsibility. The change starts with you. And I think we need to take personal responsibility for, for changing these things in our own lives in our relationships with other people and in our community. And it may not be cool, it may not be what the media is telling us, but I think it could make a big difference. Another really striking part of this story is how we think about the choices that we have and the decisions that we make. So even in the face of the most horrendous things that happen to us, so Barry and Margaret and the whole Mizzen family, have had a real trauma, but they talk about conscious decisions and choosing 
their response to things. And I think if we can hold that in mind in the face of challenge and adversity that comes our way, if we can stop, create a bit of a pause and think about how we respond in a way that's most helpful to us and to our families and to our communities. So deciding to decide. Deciding to decide our response. After hearing from Barry and Margaret, what really stands out is their capacity to forgive and accept and bolster not only resilience, but a strong sense of purpose and meaning for themselves and for others. The Resilient Road was brought to you by Positive Group and Radio Wolfgang. It was presented by me, Sinead Devine French, with Brian Marion and Elle Crush, and featured Barry and Margaret Mizzen. It was produced by Holly Aquilina. The editors were Elle Scott and Ivor Manley. It was sound designed by Ivor Manley and the executive producer was Harry Watson. For more information about Positive Group and the work that we do, go to www.positivegroup.org.